0: Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 14, Romans 14. <coughs> Romans 14. And uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses just to get the context of everything you want to say tonight. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 14 him that is weak in the faith receive ye but not to doubtful disputations for one believeth that he may eat all things another is, who is weak eateth herbs let him that eateth despise him that he is not and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth for God hath received him who art thou that judges another man's servant to his own master he standeth or falleth, yea he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. For he that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth it not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Or whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Why should thou, why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set at thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this night for your word. We thank you that we can come together and study it together. We pray that, Lord, you would give us understanding of your word now. Help me, Father God, to have clarity of thought and be able to Present your word clearly this evening. May, Father, what we study together be a blessing to us. May it be an encouragement to us. May, Lord, help us to learn from you. Uh, Guide our time, we pray in your word this night. And allow me, Father God, to be used of you for your glory. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one thing that has always been a major problem with God's people is disunity. You just go back to the Old Testament and you read the records of the Old Testament. We re- re- read there, according to the civil wars and family fights among the people of Israel. Not only that, almost every local church mentioned in the New Testament had divisions to contend with. And here in the book of Romans, we see that the believers of Rome were divided over special days and special diets. You know, today we have similar problems with many grey areas in the Christian walk, and grey areas of life that are not clearly right or wrong. When it comes to the areas that are not clearly defined in Scripture, we find ourselves needing some other kind of leading, some other kind of guidance. And Paul gives to you and I that guidance here in Romans chapter 14. Explain how believers could disagree on the non essentials and still maintain unity in the church. And here in the section Romans 14 1 through 12, he gives to us four reasons why we should receive one another. Why it is there shouldn't be disunity over these situations. Now remember, this is in the non essential things, this is not intolerance of sin. It's got nothing to do with whether or not somebody's doing right or wrong in the Word of God, regards to the Word of God. This is to do with those non-essential, those uh, uh, debatable things that uh, we have to choose for ourselves. We've seen that we should receive one another because, firstly, God has received us in verses 1 through 3. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. But not to doubtful disputations, for one believeth he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let him let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. The second reason why we are to receive one another is because God sustains his own, according to verse 4. Who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. And now we come to the third reason why we should receive one another. And that is because Jesus is Lord. And that's the context of verses 5 through 9. Now, we're not going to get through all of that tonight. We're just going to look at verses 5 and 6. But the whole section on Christ is Lord is verses 5 through 9. And in these verses, Paul seeks to answer the problem... Of these non-essentials how do we determine what to do with these non-essentials how do we accept one another with regard to these non-essential matters that arise from time to time and he starts by first dealing with the keeping of certain days and the eating of meats. so he goes back to the subject he's been talking about and now deals with the keeping of certain days and the eating of meats in verses 5 and 6 and here we are given two answers to the question of non-essentials. Firstly, Paul says, when it comes to the non-essentials, let every man be fully persuaded. Look in verse 5. He says, one esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So when it comes to these matter of non-essentials, he says everybody has to be fully persuaded in their own mind. To be fully persuaded, in their own mind. And Romans 14:5 reminds us that to the strong, all days are alike. To the, to the strong believer, to the believer whose faith is grounded very strongly, and he's a strong believer, then all days are alike. There is there is no distinction between days. But he also reminds us that to the weak believer, then things are different. To the weak believer, one day is regarded above another day. One day is seen to be more important than another day. And this was a problem, not only in the church at Rome, but in other churches as well. As we can see from Galatians and Colossians, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, "Ye observed days and months and times and years. He deals with the same situation that the Galatian, some Galatian believers, upheld certain days, certain months, certain times, certain years. To the church of Colossae, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, uh, the Apostle Paul calls them holy days. And then he goes to define what he means by holy days, such as of the new moon and of the Sabbath days. And so there were believers in the church of Colossae which celebrated and worship the Lord particularly on these special days, these Sabbaths and these new moons. Pastor Mitchell in his commentary said this, we need to, re- to remember that when Paul wrote this, there were many Jewish believers in all the churches and some would have found it hard to give up the, Sabbath, uh, the Jewish Sabbath. In some places they kept the Sabbath, Saturday Sabbath and the Sunday Lord's Day. Some were afraid of breaking the Sabbath law. Their faith in Christ was not strong enough to enjoy their freedom from the law. The strong were not to despise these people. And these weak were not to judge the strong. See, in the early church, there were a lot of people who were born again out of Judaism. And they'd been brought up on, on the fact that there were certain days they had to keep. You read the book of Leviticus, you know there's an awful lot. Of ritual given to them on certain days and certain months and certain things they had to do and they had to keep these days ritually in order to bring glory to God. And when these Jewish believers got saved and they joined churches where Gentile believers were present which didn't have these days, didn't have these celebrations, didn't have these restrictions upon them, they struggled to accept those Gentile believers who weren't keeping the Sabbaths and the moons and the festivals and moons and other things. And the Gentile believers are struggling to accept the Jewish believers who continue to worship God in a special way on these special days. You know, they would have a, a, a feast of tabernacles. They would have the feast of Passover. They would celebrate these things on a regular basis. Now, to understand Romans chapter 14 and verse 5, we need to remember... Then in New Testament times there was a connection between the observation of certain days and festivals. Okay, so there was observation of certain days. Then there was these festivals. And when it came to some of the pagan festivals, what was eaten at the pagan festivals was meat offered to idols. The Gentile believers who got saved, who had given up all their idolatry, had no trouble eating the meat offered to idols because they just saw it as meat. The Jews who've been brought up with their rituals and everything else, they struggled with that. And so we have this connection between the observation of certain days and festivals. In fact, the Levitical ceremonial law spelled out what foods were to be eaten at the Jewish festivals. And the nation of Israel was told that in these special days they were not to eat certain foods that were allowed in other days. Is this mention of foods which Paul has talked about in verses 2 and 3 where he's talked about meat, okay, and he's talked about eating herbs. This mention of food in verses 2 and 3 leads the Apostle to naturally discuss holy days. Because for both the Gentiles and the Jews, these holy days were associated with the eating of foods. And so the two went together. And so it's only reasonable that you would mention both of them in this passage with regard to this matter of non-essentials. So it's important to remember that what's being discussed here is not the keeping of the moral law. This is not the keeping of the moral law. This is not the keeping of thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt, not, thou shalt have no other gods before me and so on. This is not with regards to the moral law. For God's moral law must be kept. It is to be observed. It is to be obeyed. God's moral law is absolute. That's the word of God. This is God's moral law. And what's written in black and white is in black and white for a reason, for you and I to receive it and to obey it. It's absolute. There is no wriggle room in God's moral law. So what Romans 14 is dealing with is God's so-called ceremonial law. You see, one of those non-essential things, those things that are not written down in the Word of God, those traditions, those festivals, those things that had risen up in the church that had nothing to do with God's moral law. It was the preferences of the believers to do certain things or not do certain things. So Romans 14.5 confirms for us that in relation to these non-essentials it is a matter of individual conscience. He says, let every man, in verse 5, be fully persuaded in his own mind. This is a matter of individual conscience. The important thing in these non-essentials is the motive of each individual. Why are you doing what you're doing or why don't you do what you do? What he's telling us is that every man is to examine himself and then we're to act accordingly. So we are to have a look at all these things and we are to act accordingly as our conscience allows us to do certain things or not to do certain things. It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of you and I as individuals working out what is right for us how can we best, as individuals, serve the Lord? How can we best, in these non-essential areas, bring glory to God, as we're going to see shortly? Now remember, once again, this does not refer to morality. This has got nothing to do with the moral law. not refer to subjects that were morally wrong, but only to ceremonial observances. And it's interesting here to observe that Paul does not give his own opinion. He doesn't even tell us what he thinks is right and wrong. He doesn't say, look, I think it's okay to eat meats and it's not okay to do this. He leaves it to the individual. He says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He simply says, let us have, be fully convinced that what we're doing is right that we're not doing it because somebody else does it, we're not doing it because somebody else suggests it, or that we're not, we are doing something because somebody says it's okay, we're doing it because in our conscience, we are comfortable doing this, or comfortable not doing this, because we, we know our faith is strong enough to deal with it. You know, it's of no value at all to say, I don't believe in doing this, Or just to say, I do believe in doing this. We must be fully persuaded about it. You know, we could go through a list of things. You know, I'm not going to. We could start listing things that, you know, are doubtful things, are non-essential things for believers, and we could list them, and we could ask the question individually. Okay, so here's an event. Okay, how many of you do it? You know, and how many of you don't do it? And then say, okay, why... Do you do it and why don't you do it? The answer is, okay, the reason I'm not doing it or the reason I am doing it is because that's what my conscience allows me to do. Before God, I can do it. You know, it's true some believers can't do some things because their conscience won't let them do it. Where another believer can do it because their conscience lets them do it. It's hard to believe, but, you know, some believers struggle with watching sport. Because in, before they got saved, sport to them was just a, a riotous and drunkenness and, and all the partying that went on after the game. And they can't watch sport, they can't get involved in sport, yet somebody else can love sport, get involved in sport, because they never got involved in those things. It's conscience sake. Can you do it with a clear conscience? Can you do it in a way that doesn't leave you feeling guilty for doing it? And if we do something and we feel guilty doing it, then we shouldn't have done it. Or if we don't do something and we feel guilty for not doing it, then we should have done it. And that's what he's talking about here. Martin Lloyd Jones put it this way he said, In other words, you must study the scriptures. You must say, It's not a question of what I think or of what people have told me. I'm not a slave. I'm no longer on the law. I've been given understanding. The Holy Spirit is here, and I have the scriptures. So you take this problem, and you work it out in terms of the scriptures until you understand what is your position. We have to figure out for ourselves in these non-essentials what's right for us. Can I do it with a clear conscience? If I have a guilty conscience of doing it or not doing it, then I should change my ways the words to be fully persuaded here in verse 5 any may be fully persuaded in his own mind the phrase to be fully persuaded speak of the highest conviction this is not just you know well i think this is okay this is you you have a high conviction about this you're fully persuaded you're absolutely confident that what we're doing in this area is right that we know this is Okay, to do. We're absolutely confident that as a believer, we can do this without any shadow of doubt. It does not cause any doubt in our conscience about it, or that we don't do this because we know without a shadow of doubt that's the right thing to do. We just know for us that's right. It's an absolute conviction about it. We can be convinced that for us, not for others, but for us as individuals this is the right thing to do. And notice he says, let every man. It's not for me to judge you, it's not for you to judge me with regard to these non-essentials. See, I might be able to do something in a very clear conscience that you can't do. And I have no right to judge you for not doing it and you have no right to judge me for doing it. But likewise, I might not be able to do something that you quite happily do. Once again, it might be that my heart will not let me do that thing. I, can't, I genuinely can't do it. I, I genuinely can't bring myself to do that thing. But that doesn't mean I should criticize you because you can do that thing. If it's not in the word of God, if God's word doesn't say thou shalt not, if it's not black and white, if it's not part of the moral law of God, then we have to be fully persuaded. We have to be convinced as individuals what is right for us. One commentator said, every man is bound to obey his conscience. But that conscience must be enlightened and prompted by the examination of Scripture. And ultimately the love for the Lord as we're going to see next. See, this is a matter of you and I must sit down before the Lord and work out what's right for us before Almighty God, in the light of the Word of God. Because if it's not enlightened by the Word of God, then you can have problems. For instance, if a person believed that you needed to keep the Sabbath to be saved, then that's not a matter of conscience, it's plainly error. It's adding works to faith. So that's what I mean by we need to examine these matters of conscience in the light of the Word of God. If our conscience says, if we think our conscience says this is what we ought to do, but the Word of God says we shouldn't do it, then conscience shouldn't be listened to. The Word of God should. Doctrine is paramount in these matters. In matters of conscience... You and I have liberty. But in matters of doctrine, there is no liberty. They're absolute. And so here what we have is two things. There's this absolute doctrine that's spelt out in the Word of God that does not change It's the same as God who wrote it. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's absolute. There is no change in the absolute doctrines of the word of God. They are true and they remain true and will be true through all of eternity. They never change. But then there are matters whereby you and I as believers have to make a decision about what's right for us. And we must always take those things and put them under the microscope of God's word to check firstly that they are not contravening the Word of God. And then if the Word of God does not shine a light upon them as being contravening its truth, we can then take it and say, okay, now what must I do in this matter? What is right for me? What does my conscience before Almighty God allow me to do? As I get before the Lord on my knees, what does God allow me to do? So such issues like holy days, God's word makes it clear, it's to be left to the conscience, the individual. And you and I can apply that to all sorts of areas of life. And I could list all those areas or many of the areas. You know, the problem with that is I probably list some that you wouldn't even have thought of. But you think about it. There's lots of areas in our life whereby we have to make decisions to believers, what's right and what's wrong for us. Is it okay to go to this place? There's no verse that says thou shalt not go there. It's a matter of choice. Is it okay to, to do this? There's no verse that says yes or no. So we have to choose conscience sake. But at the end of the day we must be fully persuaded in our own minds that we're doing what we're doing in those non essential areas is for the right reasons. In Romans chapter 14, and verse 5, we have the first answer to the problem of non-essentials, which is, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And then in Romans 14:6, we have the second answer to the issue of non-essentials, where the Apostle Paul says that when it comes to non-essentials, did he do it to the Lord? Look at verse 6. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth thanks, uh, give God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord eateth not, and give God thanks. It's the important thing. You know, whatever we do, we must be able to do it to the Lord. To do it to the glory of the Lord. We're not to use conscience as an excuse To sin. Conscience should never be an excuse for sinful behavior. You know, I I can do this with a clear conscience. But it's sinful behavior. It's wrong. What we need to do is we need to see things from the perspective of what would the Lord do? What would the Lord want? Does this bring glory to the Lord? One commentator said the spirit in which we decide one way or the other is, in a sense, even more important than the decision itself. See, so you and I may well have, for conscience' sake, you and I may well have thought this through and we believe that we have a good conscience about it, but then we look at it in the light of what would the Lord do and then we realize, well, he probably wouldn't do that. And so we shouldn't do that. And so the spirit in which we decide one way or the other is indeed more important than the decision itself. You and I must not determine what to do in these non-essential things solely on intellectual terms. When it comes to matters of conscience, it can't just be an intellectual decision. We must always ask, does it bring glory to God? Look with me in Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Colossians three seventeen says, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And then drop down to verse 23 in the same chapter. Where well, you read, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men. Whatever we do, we're to do it heartily unto the Lord. Whatever we do, we're to do it for the glory of the Lord. Nolan Jones said, Paul says, in effect, above everything else, your controlling consideration must be that you are doing everything for the glory of the Lord with a desire to please him. See, these non-essential things, the reason why we do it is not just because we have a clear conscience, but because we know that in doing this, we can bring glory to God. Now, a key word in verse 6 is the word regard. Which he says that he that regardeth the day, and he that regardeth not a day, and doth not regard it. Okay? This word regard. The word is very similar to the word esteemeth in verse Five, where it says, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. And it means thinking about, understanding. It refers to the way of thinking, or the results of a way of thinking. So as you and I are examining our own hearts, as we're considering the situation, and we're becoming persuaded in our own minds, then you and I, on that consideration, must regard the day for the glory of God, or regard the food that we eat for the glory of God, or regard the thing we're doing, the non-essential thing, must be governed by the glory of the Lord, not just our consciences. Now, so some regard certain days as being important, and others do not, Both are governed by their relationship with the Lord. That's his point here. These are all believers. Whether they be a Jew or a Gentile, whether they're eating vegetables or eating meat offered to idols, they're all saved. And if they're all seeking to bring glory to God, then we ought to accept them in these non-essential areas. They're both concerned with pleasing the Lord. Look in First 1 Corinthians 10.31. thirty-one. First 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to Jew nor to Gentile, nor to the church of God. We're to do everything we do to the glory of God. Romans 14 and six makes it clear that our primary concern should not be our own liberty that we have in Christ. It should not be our own free will that we have in Christ. But it should be the glory of the Lord. That ultimately, the reason why we do something or don't do something is because we know we can do that for God's glory. The reason why those Jewish believers were not eating meat that was offered to idols but eating vegetables because they felt that that was the way they could bring glory to God. The Gentile believers who were quite happy to eat meat that was offered to idols, meat in the market that could well be offered to idols, is because they believed they could do that to the glory of God in the face of their neighbors and friends. Both believed they could do it to the glory of God a primary concern above all other concerns should be the glory of the Lord. And therefore, while something may be acceptable to us, a non-essential thing, we must always ask if it brings glory to God. In a sense, the question that's been asked here in verse 6 is this. What is it that makes a dish of food holy? Holy. What is it that makes a day holy? What makes vegetables more holy than meat? What makes keeping a special day in the calendar more important than any day in the calendar? I mean, if every day we're seeking to bring glory to God, and every day we're serving the Lord, and every day we're honoring Him, surely that's as important, isn't it? as if I am celebrating one day, a month, for a special day where I bring glory to God. And that's his point here. You see, what makes a day, a dish of food, holy or a day holy is the fact that we relate it to the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. The person who treats a, day, a special day as holy does so unto the lord look at verse six again it says he that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the lord he regards as holy he regards that special day as set apart unto the lord for service of the lord so the person the believer who desires to have certain special days whereby he himself decides maybe he's going to make a day to fast or he's going to make a day to spend in prayer or whatever it might be. He's setting that day apart specially for the Lord. He's doing it unto the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. He believes that he's required by God to do it. This is his conscience tells him. In order to have a clear conscience, he's required by God to do this. This is what pleases God in his eyes. The person who treats every day as sacred, though, does so unto the Lord. Look in verse 6 again. It says, And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He doesn't keep that day of special day, whatever it might be, to fast or to pray or to witness whatever that person has chosen to do. He doesn't keep it, because every day to him is sacred. Every day he prays. Every day he seeks to serve the Lord. Every day he sacrifices himself to serve the Lord. Every day he gives over to the Lord. Therefore, he does it to the Lord. That is, he doesn't believe that God requires it of him. And so, therefore, he makes every day special. He goes on, the Christian who eats meat gives thanks to the Lord. Verse 6 again, he says, He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. He eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. He believes that God does not forbid it. And because he desires in doing it to glorify the Lord, he eats and gives thanks to God. He doesn't see that eating this food is wrong. He doesn't see that eating this meat that may well be offered in a while is wrong and he does it and when he eats it he gives thanks to God. He publicly prays his grace. He gives thanks to God for it and in so doing you bring glory to the Lord. The Christian who abstains from meat, sustains unto the Lord which is what he says in the last part of the verse. He says, and eateth not, to the Lord eateth not, and giveth God thanks. He abstains from eating because he believes that God requires him to do it. He has a desire to obey and honor the Lord. In his mind, if he doesn't eat this certain kind of food, if he doesn't eat these certain kind of things, he's do. when people say to him, why don't you eat that? He can say, because I don't think it brings glory to God, and I want to bring glory to the Lord. So he gives thanks unto God. He gives testimony of his faith. The point is that you and I can't judge the motives of other believers. When somebody's doing something that you and I in good conscience could not do, but in the spotlight of God's word, there's no reason why they should not be able to do it. If they're doing it for the glory of God, if the testimony of Christ has been upheld by that behavior, then who are we to judge? But on the other hand, if there's a believer over here who struggles with something, and because of their struggle in the faith of those things, he decides not to do something, That in the light of God's word is not prohibited anyway, but they don't do it because they want to bring glory to God, and they're giving thanks to God and testimony to Him. Who are we to judge? We're all individuals. And all of us have to choose individually before the Lord what is right and wrong for us in these non essential areas. It's not for us to judge. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody criticize another believer for something another believer's doing because they can't, and, and they don't do it, but they think the other believer is not living up to the testimony of Christ. It's not their place to judge. And yet I'm sure we've all heard people do that. Criticize another believer for doing something or criticize another believer for not doing something that's not scriptural, it doesn't come under the banner of the, the moral law, and yet they criticize the person for it. It's their choice. Romans 14.6 says in effect, as long as both of you are concerned with God's glory rather than with yourselves and your own liberty and ideas, then you must receive one another. We're not to condemn The one who eats meat. Or the one who's doing something that's not covered by the moral law. Nor are we to criticize the one who does not eat meat or does not do something that is not covered by the moral law. If they're doing it for God's glory and each believer shows concern for the glory of the Lord, we should receive each other. One commentator said this, they are both consumed with showing the glory of the Lord. They are both anxious to behave as Christians. They are both eating to the Lord for the Lord's sake and they are both giving God thanks, one for meat and one for vegetables. But they are both conscious of the fact that God is the giver of every good and every perfect gift and that all food comes ultimately from the Lord and therefore They give thanks to God for it. The most important question of meat and vegetables is the fact that both are concerned with serving the same Lord and the same Master. So the point is that we should never judge other believers in the non-essentials. Because we don't know their heart. We don't know with the believer won't do something that we look at with strange look, we think, why won't they do that? That seems odd. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but they won't do it. We don't know why it is in their heart they can't do it. We don't know what their struggle is. We don't know what their, their faith is. We don't know what their faith struggle is in that regard. It may well be that something in their life has caused them to come to a place whereby they cannot do that because it's too painful to do it. But who are we to judge? But then there's other believers who, in all good conscience, according to the glory of the Lord, can do a certain thing without anything causing any trouble for them at all, causing any struggle whatsoever. They can do it, and at the end of the day, they go to bed at night, and they can praise God, and they can go to sleep, knowing that that day they brought glory to the Lord. In doing those things, who are we to judge? They do what they do, if they abstain from what they abstain, as unto the Lord, then praise the Lord. That's why we should respect each other and receive one another. As he goes on in verses seven and eight and nine, seven through nine, he then develops this further, which we'll look at next time, where he says, "For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself." For whether we live or we we live under the Lord, or whether we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. He's going to develop it further and talk about the fact that because Christ is Lord, then we need to act in a certain way. We need to examine what we do in the light of Scripture, in the light of the person of the Lord, and then make a decision... In our, according to in our own minds in our own conviction as to what we shouldn't shouldn't do now remember this is not about keeping the moral law remember God's moral law must be kept it must be obeyed it must be observed that's God's moral law it doesn't change it's absolute it's even true for every believer As it was for the Old Testament saint, it is for the New Testament saint. Nothing's changed. God's moral law does not alter. There's no wriggle room in God's moral law. It's about that ceremonial law. It's about those non-essential things. Spurgeon said this, I've come to the conclusion that instead of trying to set all my master's servants right at once, My first and most important work is to follow my Lord. And I think, my brother, that it will be wise for you to come to the same conclusion. Rather than worrying about the other believer and what they're doing in these non-essential areas, just worry about what we're doing. As Paul puts it, just mind our own business and do it to the glory of God. And don't worry about them. Let them serve God to God's glory. In the non-essential life, we should receive one another and not judge one another. And if we will follow that principle, we will maintain unity within the body of Christ and we'll bring glory to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this admonition Uh, With regard to non-essentials, Father God, in your word, Lord, we need to examine our own hearts and to make sure that, Father God, we can do what we do in good conscience and then to examine, Father God, the motivation for doing it, that we do or we don't do what we do for the glory of the Lord. And Lord, help us to keep our own counsel and not to sit in judgment of others Lord God, seek to receive one another for your glory. But as we close, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.